the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's a minute before 3 o'clock Tuesday afternoon on Southern California Live on KKLA and Cape Rays. I'm Bob Lapine. Glad you're along with us this afternoon. And I'm, I imagine you've had a conversation, know somebody, you've heard this story more often than you wish. Somebody who grew up in a Christian home, Christian family, went to youth group when they were young, seemed solid, on fire, uh, committed to Christ, and then maybe in college, after college, you started to hear about cracks. They weren't going to church. They were exploring some new things. And then the next thing you hear is, yeah, they they don't really believe that anymore. Or maybe you talk to them and, and they say, yeah, you know, I I just, yeah, I'm not there. Uh, maybe you know about somebody like the musician Michael Gunger, who was doing Christian music for a long time and put together a podcast called The Liturgists. And over time, you started to see this slide away from Orthodox Christianity into something that doesn't even resemble Christianity. Probably the biggest, best-known, highest-profile situation like this happened a couple of years ago when Joshua Harris, who uh, had been a pastor, gone to seminary, wrote a best-selling book about dating two decades ago, was a well-known conference speaker, Went on went on Twitter and Instagram and first announced that he and his wife were separating. Then announced that they were pursuing divorce. And then announced that he was no longer where he had been with regard to his, his faith. So the term that gets tossed around, gets used for this, uh, is the term deconstruction. But maybe deconversion is is a better term for it. And what's behind it? What would cause someone who was a pastor, who knows the scriptures, who has been immersed in the Bible, Christian community, what causes that person midstream, midlife to say, yeah, I don't think that's true. I used to think it was true. The more I look, I'm just not sure. Well, that's what we're going to explore in this hour. And and I again, I'm guessing that you know somebody. Maybe it's one of your adult children. Maybe it's a friend. Maybe it's somebody you went to high school with or went to college with, and you guys, you were in church together, and today it's just not a part of their life any longer. How do you make sense of that? 
what happened to them, and then how do you engage with them with where they are today? And then there's the theological question of, was this person, is this a person who was saved and is no longer saved? Or is this a person who was never saved at all, even though they gave the appearance of being saved? We're going to talk about all of that, and to help us do that today, I'm glad to have uh, John Marriott joining us uh, on Southern California Live. John, welcome to the program. Just double-checking. We got you there, John? Uh, yep. Can you hear me? We can hear you now. Thank you. John John serves at Biola University. He is the research and program coordinator for the Biola University Center for Christian Thought, teaches in the Department of Philosophy. He's a former pastor, has a Ph.D. from the Cook School of Intercultural Studies, and his area of, of interest, he's written three books on the subject of Christian deconversion. Back in 2018, he wrote a book uh, called A Recipe for Disaster. He's also written a book called The Anatomy of Deconversion and a book called Going, Going, Gone, uh, along with a book called Before You Go. John, uh, this has been a particular area of interest and focus for you. We're glad to have you on this afternoon. Why this subject? What drew you to this? Several years ago, I was um, looking on the Internet and uh, came across a story that really stopped me in my tracks. And it was a story of someone who had made a really big impact in my life for, for Christ. He was someone with a, just an outstanding Christian testimony. He was an international figure. Um, he was a sports figure, someone who uh, uh, it, it seemed as though God had providentially brought into my life at a time when I was at a really low point. And... Um, I had found out that he had lost his faith, that he no longer identified as a Christian. And this was uh, somebody who, at, at, who prior to this, was maybe one of the most well-known uh, Christian believers in the United Kingdom, and um, said, I don't believe in, in Jesus anymore. I don't believe in God anymore. I don't think that there's any good reason to. And my life is better today than it was when I was a Christian. And uh, I thought, how is that how is that possible? I didn't have any categories to try and make sense of that. And it was right around then that I was uh, trying to decide on what I was going to do my research on as I was in a PhD program. And uh, I thought I'm going to take a look at people who uh, at one point were committed to following Jesus. So they identified as Christians. They were part of a church and um, came to a place where they said, I just don't believe this anymore. And I wanted to figure out uh, why that happened and what was the process and what was the impact in their life once they went from being a follower of Jesus to someone who says that uh, they think that the the whole thing is just, uh, you know, untrue. Yeah. And and just to be clear, you're differentiating what we would call deconversion from the, the category of deconstruction. Deconstruction would be somebody who might have held a classical evangelical orthodox view of faith who has shifted on that view and and is beginning to take some of those pieces or categories away they they now support same sex marriage or they they now look and say i don't believe in hell any longer they they've got all kinds of of gaps in their orthodoxy deconversion as you're defining it is somebody who says i used to believe in god i don't anymore is that right that's exactly right. Yeah. And there's probably a third category that you could put in there. And it may be, may be the majority of, of people who have shifted from 
being Christian to saying I'm just not, I'm a nun, I don't have any religious faith, or someone who would identify as someone as they would say, I'm a done, I'm done with organized religion. That third category in the middle would be maybe those folks who uh, were in the church, were, were nominal, were uh, you know, at youth group, uh, went to the Bible camp, maybe made a profession at some point, but it was maybe uh, they, they didn't really, they, they lacked some real deep roots in their faith and being part of the faith community. And, and they've just sort of drifted away where faith for them is maybe irrelevant. If you ask them, do you go to church? No. Do you raise your children as Christians? No, not really. Do you read the Bible? No. Are you a Christian? Well, yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm a Christian, um, sort of, but I'm kind of done with organized religion. So there, there would be a third category in there. But the people who I'm looking at and who I've had the most interest in are people who had a clear testimony as being a follower of Jesus and um, were heavily involved in their church and and have come to the place where they just haven't drifted away because it's inconvenient. They haven't uh, kind of uh, uh, just uh, walked away casually. These are people who say, I, I just don't think this is this is true anymore at all. And I am um, kind of undoing my conversion and uh, pulling myself out from the community that I was once a part of. I am no longer a Christian. And I mentioned Joshua Harris as kind of the, the best-known example of this, although he still is kind of left a crack in the door with with a, a vague, I'm still exploring, I'm I'm open, but I don't think it's true at this point. He's He hasn't fully jumped to the other side of the creek yet, has he? Yeah, it's hard to say. I, I don't, you know, I've never spoken with uh, Joshua Harris, and uh, I'm familiar with his story. I, I even have some of his his books on. He has, he has a really good theology book called "Dug Down Deep," and mm-hmm. it's about uh, you know having good theology and, and being grounded in truth. Um, so it's it's really hard to say, but I have heard him say in a podcast recently that um, yes, that there is. Uh, potential there, and there is a crack uh, that that may uh, result in him returning to faith one day, which would which would be fantastic if that happened. But I, I did, in your opening, um, sort of wonder when you said today we're going to talk about this, and then you said and and maybe the most well known and uh, and sensational deconvert is, and I thought, oh, I wonder which one he's going to mention because. <laughs> There's probably four or five other people that you could have chosen that are at the same level as Joshua Harris, who also have, have left the faith. And, and they're really just the tip of the iceberg, because there are tens of thousands of other people who have followed them um, or have preceded them, but they're just uh, not as well known, and so they don't get the uh, media attention. And, and so just to have categories, who else would be in the Joshua Harris camp? I'm not I'm not trying to... You know, to expose, I'm trying to help listeners get an idea sure. of, of who's the who's the face of this for us. Yeah, well, you you mentioned uh, the Gungers, um, so both the husband and the wife, uh, Marty Sampson, who was with Hillsong, uh, Bart Ehrman, who is uh, is in a recent deconvert, but certainly uh, a very significant one, who is at the University of North Carolina Chapel Hill, who went to Moody and then went to uh, Princeton Theological Seminary to study the New Testament, and, and now no longer identifies as uh, a Christian. And um, I, I think he's, he's either a, a, an agnostic or he's a, a moved over to atheism. 
Charles Templeton, of course, uh, used to preach with Billy Graham and uh, yeah. at one point was drawing larger crowds than, than Billy Graham. And that uh, was maybe one of the most, well, certainly was the most well-known uh, evangelical Christian in, in all of Canada. And Jonathan Edwards, the uh, triple jumper, uh, gold medalist in the Olympics, who the British press was more impressed with his Christian testimony and the character of his life than they were with the fact that he won the Olympic gold medal and set the world record uh, in the triple jump. And uh, and the list actually just, you know, uh, continues to, uh, to go on. So um, you could have chosen from uh, a number of uh, really well-known people who have uh, since left the faith. And I'm sure that there are others uh, who are listening right now who are also ticking off some names that I've uh, forgotten. Well, in fact, Will is on the line with us, and, and let me encourage listeners, you can join us as well at 888-52-TALKS, 888-525-2557. But Will, Will, has, Will, you've noticed this, and what's been your experience in, in talking to deconverted people? And I, we'll see if Will's still there. Will, you there? Hello. Hey, Will. Hello. Uh, w- welcome hey. to the program. So you've you've had experience in talking to or interacting with friends who have deconverted. Yes, I have. Um, you know, a couple of things that we need to consider here is um, number one, and what I found out in these circumstances caused me to come to these conclusions: leaving Christianity does not necessarily mean leaving Christ. And uh, okay, okay. Back can, can, hang on, you're, you're going to have to explain that to play on words. Well, well, hang on, you're going to have to explain that to me. How how can somebody stay with Christ and leave Christianity? Okay, well, let me explain. Uh, in the same way that the Jews um, had Judaism without God, um, as evidenced by the fact that they were stoning prophets that were sent to them. And eventually, it's the time that Christ came to crucify him. But they believed, couldn't tell them that they weren't serving God. Look at just how the Jews handled Christ and what they called back then was the Christianity of their time, Judaism. That's so, not what God called it, but I mean, this is what we use today. And even with Christianity, Christ never said, I came to bring you Christianity. He says, I came that they may have life and that more abundantly. And so I you're think saying that the Christians you're, of today have become the Judaites or Judaism, uh, the followers of a, of, a, of a Judaism that is uh, now we consider Christianity. Okay, and so I think so, that, and, and even myself being involved in this, I understand how people can come to that conclusion. So I think what what has to happen is, you know, in Christianity, what we call Christianity today, is not jiving with what the scriptures teach, actually. Uh, it has become tradition mixed with, uh, just like within Judaism, with elders and our finest scholarly theologians that we uphold and idolize and mixed with their thoughts and opinions. And over the years, it's meta, uh, you know, metamorphically, it has turned into really a religion, and we forgot we were serving a person. So a lot of people are getting out because they realize that they've left the person Christ and Christianity thing, without Christ in it, it doesn't do anything. Okay, let me take this to to John Marriott and Will. Thanks for your call, because John, this is we will often hear people who will look at modern American evangelicalism and say 
this doesn't look or smell anything like biblical Christianity to me. Is that a legitimate critique, or are these people who are uh, finding an excuse for drifting away? Well, I, I appreciate Will's, Will's comment. I think that there's a distinction between what Will uh, is raising and, and the specific topic of, of our show today, and, and that is that the, there are people who are, and especially young people, Gen Z, uh, millennials, are, are taking a look at uh, what they see as the expression of the church and saying, well, this is what Christianity is. I don't see it lining up with the teachings of Jesus. I sat down with one of my students at Biola recently, and she says, you know, I, I don't see um, the church in America, and she's referring to her evangelical experience of it, as being really representative of the person I see of Jesus on the pages of the Gospels. And I think that there is a, a critique of that that, that certainly can be made. Um, every generation and every iteration of Christianity is always to some degree uh, an interpretation or is embedded or situated in, in a culture and is never pure, unadorned, uh, pristine way of the way of Jesus, right? So we're always trying our best to, to, to try and get closer to living out the, the, the way of Jesus, uh, the religion of Jesus, if you want to call it that. But um, And so I think that there is room for critique there, but I think that's more the deconstruction that you raised at the beginning, uh, that, that there is a time and a place to say is what I believe and what I've been handed by either my parents or my church or the or the Christian denomination that I was uh, converted into, it, is that really uh, an authentic representation of what the Bible teaches? And I think that everyone should uh, go through that process. If we think that Jesus is Lord and we want to be faithful to Him, then that does require us going back to His Word and asking if we understand it correctly. But there, that's different from saying, I no longer believe in Jesus, I don't believe in the existence of God, I don't think that Jesus lived. I think that Christianity is immoral. I think that um, we would be better. I think it's demonstrably false. And and I think that's kind of what we're we're talking about today is we're talking about not people who are rethinking the kind of Christianity that they've inherited. I think we're talking about people who no longer want to have anything to do with Christianity at all because they and, think and it's let, not true. And let's be fair; it is appropriate to look at our modern expression of Christianity and say, does this line up with the Bible? The, the, the slogan, Semper Reformato, we should always be reforming. That's, that's valid. And, and we, we need to look at our cultural context and say, are we living out the truths of Scripture? And as you said, we never do it perfectly, but we, we strive for that. Uh, and, and so my, my concern with someone like Will is that they would look and say, well, the church today is, is, uh, so polluted that there's no hope left when Jesus said the gates of hell will not prevail against my church. You can't just strike off on your own and say, uh, I have uh, the right view. You have to you have to be in community with brothers and sisters who, who Jesus is going to bring around you and, and be moving forward on that. But let, let me get back to this issue of deconversion, because all of us find ourselves, as you did, stumped by someone who seemed to be able to articulate a strong faith, a strong belief in the biblical record and the truth of Jesus, and who came to a point where they said, no, I was wrong about that, and I don't believe that anymore. That's a pretty radical departure from 
from saying this. I used to believe that this was so true. I built my whole life around it, and now I've thrown all of that out. As you've looked into this, what's going on there? Well, um, I, I think there's there's two perspectives that we should take to try and get the, the best picture that we can. And, and one is to listen and to try and really listen well and, and not go in with any prejudgments about why people are saying that they've lost their faith. And when we do that, um, universally, the answer is always because I no longer think that it's true. No, no one ever says it's because I want to sin. No one ever says it's because um, I had a bad experience. But they may say something like this. I had such a bad experience that I came to the conclusion that if this is what Christianity produces, then it can't be true. Or I've had um, some serious intellectual problems with Christianity. I've, I've encountered some some things about the history of the Bible, about the composition of the Bible, um, that just I can't reconcile. They, I, I, I met with a gentleman um, two weeks ago, um, and we talked for about four hours, and all of his problems with his faith, and, which he says he lost in tears, and I, I have no doubt uh, about it. He flew across the country to talk with me uh, because he wanted to hold on to his faith. He wants to maintain his faith, but he says, he thinks that the Bible is just demonstrably false. He said, I, I, I read sources outside of the standard Christian apologetics resources, and I came to the conclusion that they had better arguments, and I, I just don't believe that the Bible is a historical record of the nation of Israel anymore, and that it's God's Word. Right? So he has these real intellectual problems. Other people have uh, sometimes the crisis of faith starts with a kind of a value problem. But even if it's a value problem, it's a value problem that says, because the values of either what I think is Christianity or because of the values that I think that the Bible teaches, I've come to the conclusion that it, it really can't be true if it means that we have to censure certain uh, expressions of love or if we have to... Um, say that certain people can't, uh, you know, shouldn't be married, or if certain people, because they don't believe the right things, uh, which I think is a, a misunderstanding, will, will end up uh, spending eternity away from God. That seems very uh, intolerant and unjust and cruel. And and so it's always because they've come to the place where it's untrue. For some, the crisis starts with an intellectual problem. For some, it's an experiential problem. For others. They say that the values of Christianity and the Bible are just so far out of uh, step with modern moral sensibilities that it's clear that um, it's not true. And, um, and and so almost every expression of, of loss of faith will be able to be traced back to one of those three sources. John Marriott is joining us this afternoon. He is at Biola. We're talking about the the question of Christian deconversion, those who once believed who don't any longer and would say, I've looked at this and I don't think it holds up anymore. Uh, we're also taking your calls at 888-52-TALKS, 888-528-2557. We'll take a quick time out. Be back with more in just a minute.
Southern California Live on a Tuesday afternoon. I'm Bob Lapine on KKLA and KPRZ. We're talking about um, decon- deconversion. I was talking to a mom recently who had dropped off her her daughter at uh, at university uh, as a freshman, and and her daughter is solid, walking with the Lord. and And I said, "Is she ready for?" what may be ahead for her. And the mom said, oh, yeah, I think she is. I, I think she's solid. And I thought, I hope, because I don't know how many parents I've talked to like this who thought their kids were grounded and solid and loved Jesus, and they get into the college classroom, and they find themselves, uh, th- their faith is put under pressure, and they they become uncomfortable with things. We're talking with John Marriott, who's written a book called, called The Anatomy of Deconversion. John is uh, at Biola. And, and John, uh, it, it does seem like colleges and universities are, are almost a breeding ground for deconversion. Yeah, that's, that's true for a number of reasons. Um, the first, I think, is not because there's anything nefarious about uh, public universities or Christian universities, because at Christian universities, uh, the same thing goes on. Um, sometimes maybe it's more of a deconstruction than a, than a complete deconversion. But one of the reasons why is because, you know, growing up in a home where um, you're told what the truth is, you're, you're given a worldview, it makes sense to you, um, you uh, believe that you value certain uh, virtues and uh, you give them great weight. But then once you get older and you move out from underneath that uh, your home and you get away from your church, um, you start maybe to find out who deep down you really are. And sometimes there is a part of us that psychologists have identified as what they call a false self. It's the the self that, well, we think it's who we are. Um, Deep down, we believe what we believe. We act the way we act. We adopt the values that we adopt because they're valued in our home or in our community. Maybe we're a firstborn uh, pleaser, um, and we want to do what we think is right, and and we want to please those people who are around us. And, and when we're younger, those values and those beliefs uh, seem to make good sense. They make sense out of our world. But as we get older, we, we might start to say, you know, deep down, I'm, I'm not really sure I agree with my, my parents on, on these things. So... Mm-hmm. Jonathan Haidt is a, a moral psychologist. He's at the um, University of, uh, he's at um, New York City uh, University. At NYU, and, um, yeah. He's written, a, a, I'm sorry, hello? Is he at NYU? Is that where he is? Yeah, he's at NYU. I mean, and, and he's written, you know, a really, interesting, uh, a really interesting book where he identifies that there are sort of six moral foundations that almost all of our moral beliefs will trace back to. And without getting into the weeds on, on all of that, he, he says that, for, for the most part, people who lean towards more of the liberal political and social spectrum will trace almost all of their beliefs on social issues back to two fundamental or three fundamental values that they give tremendous weight to. And that would be that you should do no harm, that you should um, treat people with equality and fairness, and that people should be set at liberty and, and not oppressed. Now, con- conservatives who um, you know, come to conclusions that are different on, on, on many social issues than, than liberals do, uh, seem to trace 
their conclusions back to uh, more than just those three values. They would trace them back to those three values. Plus, they would value authority greatly, sanctity greatly, uh, tradition. And so if you've grown up in a conservative evangelical home, you have probably grown up in a home that has valued things like authority, sanctity, tradition, loyalty as values that have pushed you into seeing certain issues in a certain light, like immigration, Black Lives Matter, uh, racial uh, reconciliation, um, prison, prison reform, all of those would be sort of seen as outside of, of, of what would be seen as per, perhaps for, for many conservative evangelicals um, uh, driven by a, a different agenda that they would sign up for. Well, w- what happens when you get outside of your home and you head off to university and you start to realize that maybe deep down the values that you really give great weight to are are the ones that maybe are more in line with the liberal side of the pers- of, of the political and social uh, spectrum, and and if Christianity has in the United States has become so polarized that if you're a Christian you have to be Republican, and if you're lib if you're not a Christian then you know you're probably Democrat, then uh, if your values line up more with uh, political issues that uh, line up more with a, a Democratic leaning then you start to go, I'm not sure I fit in the church anymore. I, I, mm-hmm. I have a young man who was a valedictorian of our Christian, at the Christian high school I used to teach at. I baptized him. He was on fire for the Lord. He went to Berkeley. He came back a Marxist and doesn't believe in God anymore. And the reason why isn't intellectual. It's because he says that uh, the values that he espouses now are not the values that line up with what he thinks Christians espouse. And so he, there was a sense of a false self there. He, he thought he knew who he was, but when he got out from the strictures of his, his home and the expectations of people around him, there was a freedom to become who he really was deep down. Janice is on the line with us this afternoon from L.A. And Janice, if I understand right, your son walked away from the faith after he went to college. Is that right? Yes, but he, you know, I'm a Christian. I was married to a Jew. I lived in Westwood. I raised my kids there. And I love the Jewish faith, so we, you know we did all the holidays. We went to temple too, but I would take him to church when I could. There was problems, but he saw Christ, Christ came to him. He healed him. Uh, he had a twisted vest, nephrons, and Christ came to him at age four and said, "Hey, man, I'm going to give you testicles of steel." Now, this is the only point that I can even just kindly bring up to my son uh, uh, and say, "Okay, David." you don't believe in God anymore, but what about when you saw Jesus? Now, I never saw Jesus. I love Jesus. I never had the opportunity, but he, uh, you know, I feel so bad because I was married to a Jew. You know, I feel like I should have been married to a Christian. So church wasn't a regular thing. I taught Sunday school, so he would come. But once uh, his father uh, wanted to divorce, divorce me because I was a Christian, uh it was just downhill from there, but he held the views of Christianity until he went to Berkeley, and that's at least one thing, you know, he can hold on to, even and, if, you know. And I, when, when you press him I on that, when you, say, when you say— I, I would say to any parent, and I did discourage him from going to Berkeley. I discouraged my other son uh, from going to Berkeley, and he went to uh, UT in Texas at the Business Honors Program. But he listened to me more, and he was from a Christian father. And so I just say, you know, women don't don't intermarry 
there, you know, it's almost as like Satan becomes your mother-in-law. <laughs> and, uh, I, I just don't know. I just, but I trust God still. I still trust God. What can I say? But do you have any comments on this? Well, John, let me ask you about, about this situation. How does uh, family formation and, and the, the vitality of, of, of the faith in the family, how does that affect what goes on with the kids and whether deconversion happens? Yeah, thanks for your story, uh, Janice. I, I, I really appreciate it. And I want to, I want to encourage you that, um, that um, not everyone who walks away from the faith ends up uh, a Judas not returning. Peter denies Jesus three times, and um, he ends up becoming uh, the major leader in the early church. And so not every person who walks away from faith um, stays away from faith. And there's a growing list of people on the internet who are now cataloging their loss of faith and their recovery of faith. Yeah. And so, you know, I, I just want to encourage you that um, that um, that is certainly possible in the in the case of of your son. But ha- having said that, um, one thing for others who are listening to know is that uh, the the most significant indicator as to whether or not someone will be able to successfully pass on their faith to another generation is the home life and the vitality of the faith in the home, and that doesn't mean a a legalistic kind of um, overbearing set of rules, but it means a faith that is really meaningful and lived out well in front of children by parents. And so if parents say, go to church, and we're going to go to church, and then they come home and and live a a completely hypocritical life in front of their kids, that is um, a recipe for disaster. But if there are parents who love their children well, who live out the values of Jesus, who make him the, the center of their, their home and try and make their home an outpost of the kingdom in their neighborhood and in the way they treat other people, that is the most significant indicator as to whether or not uh, children will not only uh, adopt faith, but will, manage, will, will um, maintain it and, and live it out. You, uh, you you worked in the title of your book there. Nice job. <laughs> the book is called <laughs> a, a Recipe for Disaster. You wrote about four ways churches and parents prepare individuals to lose their faith. And I, I think it's important for us to look and say, are we raising our kids in a way that's going to make it easy for them to continue to walk the path we've tried to put them on? Or are we throwing obstacles in their way. We're talking with John Marriott this afternoon about the subject of deconversion, people walking away from the faith. We're going to continue the conversation after we take this time out. We'll be back on Southern California Live. Southern California Live. KKLA and KPRZ. I'm Bob Lapine. On a Tuesday, we're talking about, well, you know, John Newton, when he when he described his own conversion in song, he said, I once was lost, but now I'm found. Today, we have a growing number of people who would say just the opposite. I once was found, but now I'm lost. Now I'm no longer where I was. We're talking with John Marriott about this subject. John's written a number of books on this. You can go to his website, which is johnmarriott.org. And Marriott is just like the hotel chain. So johnmarriott.org. There are blogs and media there. There's information about his books. And this subject is 
something that's addressed there. But, John, we were talking earlier about colleges being a, a hotbed for, for deconversion. As a grandparent, I'm, I'm looking with some trepidation at my grandkids becoming college age and thinking, is it safe for me to send off uh, an 18-year-old, not that I'm sending them, but to see my grandkids head off to college, it's like, am I throwing them right into the pit and saying good luck? Yeah, that's a good question. And um, I said earlier that there's nothing inherently or, or necessarily nefarious or, or bad about uh, the university. And I think that that's, that's true. Um, there's nothing wrong with higher education. But I do think that um, there there is something um, uh, afoul about um, a, a lot of what goes on and gets passed off as higher education in the United States. And so it, it, it's not a coincidence that many people who do go to university in a public setting uh, do come across uh, information or things are presented to them in such a way to undermine their faith, whether that's done intentionally, whether that's done uh, inadvertently, whether that is done because they have uh, entered into university or college with certain beliefs and expectations about Christianity that they think have to be true and that they must maintain, and then they get to university and and they uh, don't feel like they can maintain those anymore. And so then they say, I guess I can't be a Christian. So, for example, um, if if someone were to go to university, and, um, and I'll give you an, a specific example, um, of one of the gentlemen who I uh, interviewed in one of the books, uh, he, he became a Christian in high school, passionately in love with the Lord. He um, was discipled in a church that was high on emotion and low on uh, on doctrine and, and teaching, but uh, nevertheless, it provided with him with a foundation. And um, they then he went off to university, and the first course he took at university was one on biological evolution. And uh, he came back from his uh, first semester at college and um, was told by the people in, in the church that he, he can't be a Christian and, and believe in evolution. And um, because of that, he ended up uh, losing his faith. And he said, I, I'm not sure what I can tell you. I'm, I've been really persuaded here that um, that evolution occurred. And so I can't unlearn that. I can't put that genie back in the bottle. I can't convince myself it's not true. So if you're telling me I can't be a Christian and believe in evolution, then I guess I'm not a Christian anymore. And so he went with you know, with these expectations or these beliefs that he felt he had to uphold. And when, um, you know, in, in the, like a house of cards, when one card is pulled out, the entire edifice collapses. And so sometimes students go off to university and they believe that uh, there are certain things that they have to affirm and uphold and stand by, otherwise they can't be a Christian. And then they find that they're not able to hold those anymore. And when that one card comes out, the entire edifice of their house of faith collapses. And what's unfortunate about that is, is that, Oftentimes, many of the things that they believe are essential to Christianity and that they must affirm are actually not, and they are more uh, representative of a particular denominational perspective or a church perspective, rather than an essential core doctrine of the faith. Brian is on the line with us from Tiunga, and Brian, you've waited a long time. Thank you for holding on. You've observed that colleges seem to be an issue when it comes to this question of deconversion, right? Absolutely. I've got uh, two children that were raised 
in a Christian church. They were also, we were blessed to be able to send them to a Christian school here in Los Angeles. And we knew that we would, we were willing to sacrifice to send them both to Christian universities. My son is in his third year at APU. My daughter is in her first year at Pepperdine. And where we had hoped that they'd be sheltered from some of the occurrences that happen in the public school university, uh, we're finding with my son, he comes back frustrated. We, you know, fortunately for my wife and I, both our kids have real strong foundations and, and, uh, and with Christ, and, and they're very, you know, very set in their ways, in the, you know, with their Christianity and their faith. And but they're being tested and tried continually at the Christian university. Uh, my son came home the other day and just absolutely frustrated. Uh, one of the school groups that the, uh, the school promotes or uh, uh, advertises, uh, it's a discipleship program. Uh, basically, they're stating on their front page that, you know, that marriage is not about a man and a woman and that there are more than just two sexes, which is, Fundamentally, what you know we taught them was not the case in our in their upbringing, and and it's for me it's unfortunate just looking at the situation for what we sacrifice uh, to send them to these universities. And in my opinion, you know it's the institutions that we're sending them to, even the Christian institutions, especially the Christian Christian institutions, where you know the Bible you know dictates what our moral beliefs and standards should be. And we're seeing that there's, you know, there's a shift. And, you know, and it's my children are both seeing it, uh, not so much my daughter, but more my son at the university he, that he's at, that it's a constant uh, pressure of, you know, conforming to the world's beliefs and the world's views. Yeah. Uh, and it happens not only in the, his peer, uh, peer groups, but the teachers at the institution are also teaching in such a way to, to contradict what we brought him up as believing and to make him start questioning where he stands. So let me ask John to, to comment on this. John, what, what does a parent do if they're looking at their kids at either a private or a public school and they're starting to see them uh, facing these kinds of headwinds? How, how do we respond as parents in that situation? Well, I, I think one of the comments that I that I just heard that I appreciated was that um, it's it's particularly troubling when it, you're getting these um, questions and these doubts are being implanted that are coming from a Christian institution, and you might expect that that would happen if you head off to uh, you know a major public in, major public university, but you would hope that your belief would be reinforced and reaffirmed at a Christian school, and and so I think that that's a shame when that actually does happen. But there might need to be a bit of a distinction made as well between um, helping uh, young people to be critical thinkers, to be uh, getting them to, to evaluate and, and analyze different perspectives and to think outside of the box, exposing them to different ideas. And I think that that can happen within a Christian framework. I think that we, we really do need to uh, let uh, young people uh, know that um, that they can approach their different perspectives on on these uh, contemporary issues, and yet at the same time draw a circle around 
those which are within and, and those with are, those which are without a, a you know a Christian worldview. And so I would um, want to just make sure that if I were to approach the university, if I was to you know talk to the professor, that I would uh, find out in advance, or I would try and really you know get to the bottom of where where are you coming from? What's your intention in causing my my child or my student to think about these questions and to to really ponder? Is it uh, for the purposes of of helping them grow a deeper and more robust faith that's maybe a little bit more reflective and a little bit more critical um, and a little bit more informed? Or are you straying from and and are you moving outside of the bounds of kind of a historic Christian orthodoxy. And, and, and sometimes you can discover that just by going to the university's website. Um, you can take a look at, um, you know, what their doctrinal statements are. You can take a look at some of the, camp, the clubs that they're willing to, to have on campus. Um, you can even uh, access, often there are web pages and directories where you can find out who professors are and they can have their CV there. You might be able to find out which university they went to, where they graduated from. And all of those can help paint a picture of maybe where the university sits on the spectrum of, of you know, liberal to conservative within the broader Christian um, education system. And, and I think there's a big message here, which is just because you send your son or daughter to a school that says we're a Christian institution, don't presume that they're holding to Orthodox Christianity here. John, again, this has been so helpful. I, I want to point people to your website, johnmarriott.org, if you'd like more information. John's book, uh, a couple of books, The Anatomy of Deconversion and A Recipe for Disaster. Check those out. And John, thanks for uh, helping us out on this subject. We're going to continue the conversation after we take a time out on Southern California Live. Stay with us. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.